Hi, this is David Sweet, CEO and founder of Focus Core Japan. And if you were like many of the APAC leaders that I speak to, you're struggling in Japan to find the right talent. You get bombarded with irrelevant resumes or a lack of resumes altogether. I would like to invite you to discover the power of Focus Core's retained search. Let Focus Core help you swiftly secure top tier talent in this candidate short market. I'd like to invite you to shoot me an email and explore how we're different. And with a 100% refundable trial, we can revolutionize your hiring process today. Now on to our podcast. So I think that's the most surprising thing that those Brands that want to come into Japan just think, oh, we'll, we'll just dip our feet in the water. Got a full operation in Singapore and Hong Kong, and these are great places, but Japan dwarfs those economies. Um, but you're going to dip your toe in the water and see what happens. Don't bother. I can tell you what's going to happen. Welcome to the Focus Core podcast. I'm here with Ashley Harvey. Ashley is a C suite leader with 25 year international career, which brings the benefits of breadth and knowledge, diverse experience, and interdisciplinary thinking. He's built his background in sales, and upon that, experience in marketing, branding, partnerships, hospitality destination management, and now in the C-suite. He successfully built and led marketing strategy tactics and teams in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan, as well as the UK. And past roles have included Visit Britain, Go Central Japan, Brand USA, Tourism Switzerland, and Giga Projects in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Tourism Authority, New York City and Partners, Small Luxury Hotels of the World, Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group, Shangri-La Hotels, Hilton, Dusit Thani Group, Niseko, and Marriott. As well, he is an MBA holder uh, from the University of Leicester. Welcome, Ashley. Hey, thank you for that introduction, David. Um, I don't know who you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> Was that me? <laughs> well, this should be a fun episode. Uh, um, we've... We've spoken on so many, we've known each other for so long and spoken on so many topics. We rarely talk about business. So this should be a, a new one for us. Yeah, exactly. And what could be more fun than a couple of Gen Xers mansplaining things to the people? <laughs> so let's, let's dive right in. With your experience in uh, Saudi Arabia, Europe, Northeast Asia, I, that's such a diverse, um, diverse background with so many different regions. How has that influenced your approach to marketing strategies? And then on top of that, how has that led to business in Japan specifically? Yeah. So it's right. It is, it's diverse in terms of uh, the regions and the business cultures, but a fundamental principle of marketing at any level is park your ego. Um, the marketer knows nothing. The market knows everything so it doesn't really matter what market you get parachuted into you need to understand the market 
that you're going to be working with through, you know, desktop, third-party research, ethnology, qualia quant, um, and ongoing customers' checks and feedback. So in the end, the market tells you what needs to be done. Um, and that depends on, you know, the market size, the segments, et cetera, et cetera. So you learn from what the market tells you rather than go in with preconceived uh, ideas or you try to park those preconceived ideas, which is actually more tricky than it sounds. And then you let the market tell you. So it's not so much of a problem to move around. I guess maybe like for a CFO, it's quite similar. They go in, they look at the numbers and whether the numbers are coming from Saudi Arabia or Japan, it, the numbers is numbers, you know, revenue, but takeaway cost gives you your GOP, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of think that's that's been very convenient, very helpful in enabling that those moves around fairly diverse regions. Um, and then coming to Japan, I think Japan, third or fourth largest economy in the world, depending on which measure you take, but it's a big economy, particularly mm. Tokyo, um, is, a, is quite underrated by a lot of international businesses. Um, and I think it's also a misunderstood market too. Um, I mean, at its core, Japan is fundamentally operating a global business best practice. Mm-hmm. It's different from anywhere else in the world. But like other places in the world, it has a layer of nuance and cultural this, that, and the other that blur or muddy the waters a little bit. Um and I think international businesses stumble and bumble in Japan because of their own hubris. Um, mm. I think the failure rate is primarily a function of the HQ, whether that's HQ is in Europe or the US or wherever it might be. I don't actually think it's a, necessarily a failure of Japan. So having been here a reasonably long while, uh, kind of, I'm able to bridge the the gap between this is what HQ wants and the time frame. This is what a, this is what Japan as a business can deliver and its time frame. Let's find a happy compromise. Mm. Right. Um so that is quite an intangible skill set that doesn't usually appear on a job description, right? <laughs> mm. Um but perhaps it should. Um particularly the the more senior up you go, the more interaction you have with both the Japan side and the HQ side, particularly like if you're working for a, an international business here, mm. actually frankly i would think that's a fundamental skill set um Mm. and it goes beyond you know being able to bow and give your meishi with two hands and all that nonsense right it's uh a much more nuanced skill set yeah yeah i think it's uh, i thank you for that because i do think so often it's the as you mentioned the hubris of hq that oftentimes um Excuse what can and is possible within the Japan market, right? Yeah, I mean, I think on occasions the Japanese don't help themselves. They'll say, mm, that's difficult, this is Japan. Yeah. Dot, 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 dot. 
which basically is we don't really want to do that. <laughs> um, and that's fine. But then, like, it's my job or the country manager's job or the rep director's job to say, okay, well, what can we do that nudges Japan closer towards the objectives that HQ is after? Mm. It's being in that grey area and building the bridge between the two. Mm. It's like, um, you know, it's like a gate or a, um, yeah. Why? Why have you chosen to lead businesses in Japan specifically? I sort of often think Japan may have chosen me. <laughs> There's <laughs> some good fits, right? I am, uh, I was a bit late for this meeting because I was in the wrong chat room. My my bad, sorry about that. But by and large, I, I just can't be late. I can't deal with it. Mm. I get quite upset when I be late. So I just think I'm never, right? That timeliness is very suited to the Japanese market. Mm. Um, so that is a good match. Um, I enjoy living here. I think Tokyo is a fantastic place to, to live. And I've also lived in Fukuoka as well, which is a great city to live in. Um, so in terms of quality of life, Japan offers a lot. Um, so I think there's there's some good reasons. But I pretty much have had good experience and bad experiences, good experiences and bad experiences across all of the places that mm. I have lived. Um, and at the moment, um, I also think at the moment Japan might be on the cusp of, I always think this because I'm optimist, right? Might be on the cusp of doing something. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see how the 2024 pans out. I think it's, I think it's really being driven by this chronic labor shortage. Yeah. Um, and no longer can Japan hide behind mm. its inefficiency and just throw more resource people at it at a cheap wage because that's gone both of those things have gone there are no more people and nobody is going to continue to accept a child salary with an adult's tax it's game over for that and so businesses that survive i think will be much more efficient much more nimble and i'm pretty sure they'll be paying a fairly solid salary um mm. I, I suspect tax will probably also go up but anyway yeah, I think so. Too. That was one of my predictions. But definitely taxes. <laughs> Salaries will go up. Um, but I, yeah, I think there will be an interesting innovation with uh, with the Japanese, as you say, it, which typically takes a much longer time here. And I think we'll we'll fast track that. Yeah, give you time resource down, right? So I, you may have seen the OECD report that came out that put Japan kind of at the bottom of the efficiency charts for mm -hmm. the um we see the countries i can't remember i think it was 32 out of 38 or something it was pretty poor but that's interesting read but what does that actually mean in the workplace it means that one person might take two days to do a job that would normally take one day or you've got two people doing a job yeah. over one day when it should just be one person that then ties down cost salary basically because you've got two salaries to cover um and therefore, you don't have room to maneuver on increasing one person's salary without increasing the other person's salary. So it just keeps the cost low. So it's that costs the salary keeps the salary low. So it's being quite. Hmm. I mean, it's 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 a it's it's bad for the employee, basically their own inefficiency um, because if they sped up, did more, more efficiently, more effectively, and were probably managed actually is probably the key problem 
um, more effectively and efficiently, then you could drive salaries up because you wouldn't need to be employing so many people, hmm. which then which then offsets this um, labour shortage a little bit, right? <laughs> you use the resource in very crude terms, crude, crude economic terms, you use the resource more effectively and efficiently. Employee gets a higher salary and you get one less headcount to have to worry about. They're going to be late or call in sick or have annual leave at the wrong time. <laughs> um, so, so it's kind of win-win. Absolutely. What, I mean, from your experience um, coming into Japan, what's one of the things leading teams here that you didn't expect? I mean, I think that inefficiency sort of shocks everybody. And kind of the standard stuff. Why? What? What's that thing in the corner? Oh, oh that's a fax. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but still, it comes back to actually the inability of the HQ. Because I, prim- I've, I have only Go Central Japan was the only pure play Japanese company that I've worked for. So primarily, I've been working for or when I was running the marketing agency, working on behalf of, you know, American brands and the hotels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and those brands were excellent, I'd like to say. Um, but you look at the history of failed brands in Japan, non-Japanese brands, and you start to see a pattern. Um, so I think that's the most surprising thing, that those brands that want to come into Japan just think, oh, we'll, we'll just dip our feet in the water. Yeah. Mentally, it's like the third, fourth largest economy. You've got a full operation in Singapore and Hong Kong, and these are great places, but Japan dwarfs those economies. Um, but you're going to dip your toe in the water and see what happens. Don't bother. I can tell you what's going to happen. Mm. Right? You're going to fail. Yeah. Um, so Japan as a market, by and large, if you show Japan love, it will show you love back. Not quite as much love as you give it, but many ways, Shogunai, that's the way, way things are. And I think, you know, if you look at, um, like, for, let me just think of a nice brand to give, uh, Paul Smith, nice brand to give an example. Um, obviously, iconic brand with uh, an owner, owner driver who has spent time in Japan building the market, understanding the market, London designs. But then Japanified in order to sort of nuance to the local market. Mm-hmm. Coming back to my first point, they understood the Japan market through trial and error, and I'm sure a great deal of research um, and time spent on the ground. Um, the runway, the lead up time to success was probably extended. But what do you expect? It's a big market, right? 126 million people, 30, 40 million people on the Kanto plane right that's that's a lot yep. um so you can't just dip your toe in the water and think yeah should be all right so what i hear you saying is it's it's because of its size and diversity it's it's just a complicated market compared to other markets uh like maybe in arabia or europe well or i think in- all markets are complicated i don't think uh people i don't think foreign businesses give japan enough leeway on how to do things um Mm. i think there is a bit too much this is how we do it wherever it is they're coming from um and that's how you're doing there but it's never going to work right um that's not to say the japan way is the only way 
um, because as we just discussed, it's, you know, Japan's currently lagging well behind many other nations on its efficiency, but there is a happy medium to be had mm. that takes time and it takes investment. Um, so if you want to build mar a market in Japan, then extend your time horizon, allocate significant, allocate the correct amount of resource uh, and understand that once it starts generating profit, it will be a very good market to be in, but be patient, right? Mm. I think you and me went through, um, I'm sure it was you and me, ages ago, maybe 2014, 2015, we went to a seminar about businesses that are being successful in Japan. Mm. There was a good speech by the leader of Adidas. I've got a vague feeling yeah. Adidas. Uh, and he was saying that when Adidas was really trying to crack the market, Germany was really pushing back. And in the end, Germany said, OK, fine, we'll do what you're saying, um, because the guy had a lot of data to yeah. back up his position. And actually, overall, it improved Adidas's basically quality control across the entire its entire global network. They had to up their game to operate in Japan and be successful. And then once you had those lessons learned, it was fairly easy. It was easier to then um, take those lessons and implement them across all of their markets. Um, so there is good stuff here. You've got an aging population. If you work with that here, you'll understand what's going to happen next in South Korea and then China hmm. um, and many other European places and, and, and parts of the US as well. So there's good learning to be had globally beyond the japan market itself yeah I, I think there's a lot of companies a lot of brands that i've worked with that they've rolled things out in japan and and they found that if it works here they can always export that outside yeah. of japan instead of bringing it in the other direction it's yeah. Um, yeah. what what do you find that is the biggest challenge you're facing right now and how are you tackling it um, yeah, it comes back to the, the chronic labor shortage, right? Um, you probably have the stats to hand, but I've got a vague feeling it's about 1.8 jobs available for everyone's right. job seeker. And that's much higher if it's bilingual, much higher if it's in Tokyo. So it's a, um, it's a supplies market, right? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of companies, Japanese and international haven't got that yet. I mean, they get it, they can read it, but they're not really doing anything about it. Um, so they are. So I, I think getting people in is a, is yeah a major major challenge. Um, so how do we get around that? I mean, I've always, I mean, certainly from my time at. Um, Avia Reps, when we so when I uh, Avia Reps, which is um, uh, a global destination marketing and hotel PR agency, you listed quite a few of the clients that I that the agency represented. We um, we grew. I joined in twenty eighteen. We grew it from twenty five people up to forty people, um, and and there was quite a shortage of staff, bilingual staff in those days as well. Right, it's not a new thing. Yeah, no. we kind of made a strategic decision to let's pull in people who will give us business value add and cultural value add not necessarily cultural and business fit let's get basically good people in and spend a bit more time on training them up 
They mm-hmm. would probably be touristing at the deep end, but anyway, that's that's training, right? And um, and and getting in people who perhaps in the past you would not necessarily hire. Yep. Um, and I, I think a lot of companies are still struggling for that. They've got this. I mean, you must be right at the front end of it now. A yep. wish list criteria. Uh, click on any job post in LinkedIn, and there's this whole thing that you're supposed to be able to do. None of which is like a lot of it is out actually <laughs> opposite of what the, the previous point was, right? We, we do uh, lots of purple flying unicorn. Yes, we have. Those. Yeah. So, and, and they just still can't quite get their heads yep. around it. Um, I mean, obviously, you need to have some basic criteria, um, but for us, we we have got around it that way, um, and that then leads to c- certain things. So you've got this; you should have this very strong acquisition strategy for people who are in your ballpark, not necessarily your perfect fit, and maybe not even in your ballpark, quite frankly. But that can only really work if you then retain them, and then how do you retain them? And then, okay, so we're hiring people who don't have the industry knowledge, but we like them, they're smart, they're bilingual, they're clever, they're nice people. Uh, You need to provide a platform to bring them up to speed and give them a runway in order to learn Mm. it well. And I think that is also missing um, because it's like it's a a cost again, right? You need – it's a time cost more than anything um, because – you know, the experienced people need to be buddied up with the non-experienced people and run through the ropes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that still is not being done particularly, particularly well. You know, and that how you've got to keep those people and some of the things to keep, I think, personally, I think, good internal communications. Um, what's HQ up to? Where are we going this year? What's the fun thing happening? I mentioned the training. Um, I think access to decent benefits, whether that's annual leave. And I mean, access to annual leave, right? It's all very well for a company to say, we give you 20 days of annual leave, but you then got to allow people to take it. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, it's not a benefit, right? It's just a bit, it's a a thing on a piece of paper. Um, I think also career path that is missing. A little bit um so traditionally in japanese the career path was well just right there and eventually everyone else will retire and you'll be you'll be the boss right (laughs) um but i don't think that's i mean maybe some people quite like that but i think also there is a greater desire from people to see please show me like a career path Hmm. and that doesn't necessarily i don't think a career path necessarily needs to be upward trajectories some people may just really enjoy doing frontline work and don't really want the responsibility of worrying about all of the things that come with that you know when you've got a team to manage so how do you keep them um how do you ensure that their career is happy and satisfied and you give them good feedback without necessarily pushing them up the ladder where they don't want to be right i mean it's quite reasonable in my opinion that somebody says i, I love doing pr and i don't want to leave the front line of the pr i don't want to manage people but they still need a career right yeah. um we still need some interesting things to be going on so i think those things uh we would you would hope would and i guess that that falls into the category of professionalizing hr in japan doesn't it right yeah 
Yeah, I think your your what you've been doing around the the acquisition strategy is spot on of what more companies could really learn from that and the ROI on it is much less um than waiting around for the perfect employee. Um the time commitment and then the salary commitment for hiring that uh, perfect uh, person is just very, very difficult. And some roles just don't need it. Like you said, if you have the right, that right mindset mentality that fits the strategy of the, the position, you can, you can train people up and people love to be mm-hmm. trained. Mm-hmm. And then that gives them the career opportunities within the organization, like you said. And um, that's, you can really build an organization quickly and ramp up much quicker than just trying to find uh, a needle in a haystack, which some positions require, but not all. And yeah. that's where that, uh, as you said, your acquisition strategies really, really done a good job. Well, the best job that we can in the market. Right? <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it also it's, you know, getting out of old habits. So I've been in businesses where they only will hire bilingual people um and sometimes that's necessary so for example you know if you have a very operationally focused internally japan looking position then actually priority is probably 60% of the job they're going to have to be doing in japanese so ideally native japanese with a little bit of english will work i don't need bilingual for that position yes i would like it but i don't need it on the flip side of that where you have um a staff who's primarily dealing with customers outside of japan they actually don't need any japanese quite frankly um it would again would be nice if they did but nice is you know not not necessarily available right so this having some fluidity on how you hire and your criteria on that how do you position your company as a great company to work for Hmm. I mean, I think we sort of covered some of those things off. Um, but from a marketing perspective, I think employee branding and marketing is is very important here. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, you have marketing that drives customer acquisition and retention. You need to have a strategy that drives employee acquisition and retention. Um and obviously the branding and the logos need to be identical, right? You can yeah. play it like Nike doesn't change its logo when it's recruiting. Right? Um, but, you know, it's interesting because the, the more investment you put into your brand generally to attract customers, Nike, Apple, et cetera, et cetera, the more people want to work for you anyway. Uh, I, I mean, I imagine you know Nike, Google, these guys, Amazon, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and Toyota might struggle to find positions, but less so than a small company that has no brand recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is something in there that is important uh, around having a, a good brand proposition that is consistent, helps to get staff in and makes them happy to say i work for adidas i work for nike i work mm-hmm. for Discord, you know um because the brand is understood um 
I mean, what do, from your perspective then, from because you are much more on the front and you are actually an HR expert, I sort of fallen into it as you move up the corporate ladder. Yeah. You're much like I used to spend 90% of my time selling and doing marketing. Now I spend 90% of my time going, ah, oh, we need to hire. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and doing KPIs and things like that. So how, what do you think then? Yeah, you're spot on. I I mirror with what you're saying in that employer branding is um, the best way to to quickly hire talent and retain talent. So I there's employee branding gets um, bantered around a lot now, but I think it also it takes time and consistency. And it can't be faced only outward, but inward uh, towards mm-hmm. the organization. Like you said, retention of current staff is as important as bringing in new staff mm-hmm. and, um, and much cheaper. So a continual employee branding within the company is often overlooked as well. Mm. I mean, the other thing I think Japan is going to have to start waking up to, and it kind of it has but for years and years and years, the only way in Japan to get a pay rise was to change jobs. That's it. Um, I mean, that's the only way I've ever gotten a pay rise in Japan so far. <laughs> and that's not right. Yeah. I mean, fine for me. I've worked the system to my benefit. But actually, there needs to be annual pay reviews, which are linked to performances. Um, you know, if you've got a 13-month salary, Why? Well, why didn't you just pay that amount yeah. over 12 months and then actually have a performance bonus that's linked to, I don't know, EBT or something? Um, you know, you know, like if you're going to pay in 13 months, well, just pay it over 12 months. <laughs> uh, but again, you know. Yeah, we've uh, I've had challenges around that as well. Because uh, when you're recruiting for talent and you have an employee that's moving from company A that pays out uh, on a 12-month schedule. And so they have their monthly costs that they've uh, for their family. Mm-hmm. And then they move into another company B, which divides it out over 16 months, um, and two bonuses. That really messes up cash flow for, for individuals, yep. and they refuse to, to take those new jobs. And it yep. just makes the, the recruitment so much more difficult for companies to do it that way instead of tying yep. it, like you said, to to objectives and outcomes uh, around a job. And by and large, short-term job hopping is is not that common in Japan anyway. So this idea that the 13th month encourages people to wait for the whole year, I mean, if they're going to do that, then they're going to leave anyway, aren't they? <laughs> like a day after the 13th month gets paid. Yep. <laughs> um, so I just, I just – don't buy into it. I think pay it over 12 months and have a proper performance bonus in place. Now let's switch up gears and uh, you're, you're a very humble individual. And uh, one of the things is uh, really, yeah, you, you were, you know, named uh, country manager of the year when you were at uh, AB Europe. There you go. And uh, so talk about your, your strategies that you employ to achieve notable success. And then how has that leadership changed over the years for you? Um, so specifically for um, building success at Albia Reps. So Albia Reps, um, which is 
as I mentioned, like a, a marketing, a destination marketing, hotel, PR, mm. sales um, agency, global agency. Um, and in Japan, um, it was a owner-driver business and the owner was is probably one of the best people at PR in, in Japan. He's, he's a PR genius. Mm. But because he, like and many owner-drivers, he sat on top of a pyramid. And as the business grew, um, nobody would do anything unless they got his say-so. And he, he basically was thinking, I'm doing less PR and more things that I don't like. Uh, and he wanted to have more free time to basically go play tennis in Hawaii. And why not after you built a business? So when I took over, we, we sat down and thought, well, I, I said, I don't want that. I, I don't have the skill set to be the one person who makes all the decisions, right? We've got a decent amount of people. Why don't we? We basically formed, I think, five business units across the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, five teams of five people, very roughly speaking. And each one of those teams had a team leader or a business unit leader, and we gave them the basics of their P&L. This is your revenue. This is basically your cost of labor. And we put in some uh, KPIs to ensure profitability. So when you have any pyramid business, i.e. everything has to go through one person, that business cannot grow beyond the capacity of the one person who makes all the decisions, right? It doesn't matter how genius that person is. Um, Because each individual of those five business units was nowhere near as good as the president, no way. But put them together and empower them to go off and do it. And they were significantly better, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we did that and we grew pre-pandemic before April 2020 and the world went to hell in the handbag. <laughs> and we, we grew it from uh, 25 people, I think, to 40, 45 people. And, and then that year uh, was, I th- was one of Japan's best ever years. It was the global best year. Um, for um the japan um agency globally and that's how i ended up winning the country manager of the year then we had a different fundamental set of problems right we hit the world of covid and, and then and we're like blindsided right no, nobody has any idea how to deal with that at the start we're going yes it's like sars so we'll be fine in a couple of weeks um and then three months in you're thinking mm-hmm this is not <laughs> this is not right so we had to scout down as everybody did um and then look for other markets we had actually built out just coincidentally um quite a robust piece uh a business unit around trade and food promotion because the skill set's mm-hmm. not too different from placemaking um so that sort of saved us a little bit um and then we just started to look for marginal gains incremental improvements here there anyway and the financial year ending march 2021 actually the business was profitable actually every month we posted a profit um even on certain months i vaguely recall it being about 40 euros um but we did post a profit and then once again we won i won country manager of the year but like you don't win that, uh, particularly during the pandemic year, the deputy GM was quite a genius in looking out for, he, he was Japanese. So he just said, right, I'm going to find every single benefit we can get from the government. Let me go out and do that. Yeah. Fine. Fill your boots. Um, he had the patience and the tenacity to do it. So, um, yeah. And I think, yeah, over the years in Japan, I, I have learned 
great at patience. I'm not particularly a patient person. I don't really think I ever will be. And perhaps if I became a patient person, I'd kind of lose my reason for being in the market, right? Just yeah. The same as everybody else. But I have learned to be a bit more tolerant and patient with people, <laughs> I think. Uh, quite, And I've always been quite tenacious because of that sales background or because i was tenacious i was good at sales or vice versa i'm not really sure um maybe they feed each other um yeah and then i think also i've got a list of things and nimble that's the other thing right we've mm. been flexible there is a bit of a cult of failure i've noticed particularly if you read linkedin there's a lot of stuff around it's good to fail blah 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 you can only learn from failure failure should be fantastic blah 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 now failure is rubbish um, that's not to say <laughs> failure won't happen, but failure is the end point of a journey. And actually, when you're on that journey, you should have your eyes and ears open to be able to say, hang on, we're heading towards failure. Let's pivot. Let's go somewhere else. Mm. Um, if you end up at failure, then a lot of decisions have been made on the road which were wrong, which you shouldn't have bloody taken in the first place. I'm not big on failure. I accept it happens. But I do my best to avoid it. And that's because I think I have quite a nimble approach to where we are. If the strategy or the tactic isn't working, mm. change it. Um, there's no need to drive the Titanic into the iceberg. Just sort of turn left a little bit and you won't hit it. The icebergs right. will show up on their own. They don't need help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So keep your eyes and ears open, right? And, and see, right? So um, nimbleness, yeah. Uh, ran over about the cult of failure. Hmm. Well, what would you give advice to new leaders? Mm. Yeah, that wasn't on the script, was it? Oh, I just, <laughs> just going uh, off script. I just, I'm thinking that, you know, um, work with a lot of new leaders as well. And I think, um, uh, like, it comes back to that first point, park your ego, which is quite hard. Mm. Um most problems are solvable if you break them down many of the answers to solving a problem probably sit somewhere in your team already so you need to be able to get those answers out which can sometimes be like blood from a stone but you mm. so therefore you need to create a you know a, a team of go-to people who will open up and speak to so you need to create a a, a place where open two-way conversations can happen um and the when like in japan well in general right actually japan is quite bad at this but in general when a boss says something most people go yeah 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 <laughs> and then they go like, is it, like the japanese do it of course they do but then so did the british and i'm sure so did the americans and then they go off and do something completely different so you need to create a, um you know you need to create teams that will openly and honestly communicate with you because you can't do it alone your position is really built on the shoulders of others right um so i mean we did some we did some good stuff again coming back to have your reps um like the other thing that was quite good for us is we recognized the way we went about business development wasn't quite working so i sort of formed a business development hit squad mm -hmm. a couple of people who like every rfp we ever did basically had a whole load of admin to it so we got someone who was super duper admin mm -hmm. and just would read an rfp and go okay 
five minutes later, they go, okay, all of those things that they won, the three years of bank statements and blah, 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 got it done. Uh, And then there was somebody who was super good at putting together presentations and populating it with cool pictures and taking what I would say and turn them into really cool infograms. I'm not very good at that. I usually have to draw stuff. And so I want my, I want my, I draw a picture and say, could you make my PowerPoint look like that? And someone, and this guy would go, yep, done. So it's, it's, that's an example of drawing on the skill set um, within your team um, in order to achieve success, right? That's great. Yeah. I'd, uh, so just to summarize those two, really going and finding someone that as a leader that will give you an honest conversation. Um, I think leaders often find themselves in their their tower and not able to get a clear feedback what's going on really. So having that uh, that open communication is huge, and then playing to everybody's strengths on your team. Yeah, good advice. Yeah. If uh, if you could get all your employees to do one thing with a hundred percent dedication, what would you do? What would that be? That one. I think in this time frame for the next few years uh be open to change and that change might come fast and furious Mm. and it's not going to be change stop and then continue doing at that point uh so i think there needs to be an open-minded approach from many employees that how i used to do things is not necessarily how I will have to continue to do things in the future. Hmm. Um, And that means if you're open to change, that means you're open to upgrading your skills. It means you're open to looking at new ideas. Um, And it means incremental improvement, taking responsibility for yourself for incremental improvement. And then if, you need help from the business to say, hello, I'm doing all of this. Why are you not providing me with a, access to a training fund? Or, you know, you're asking us to do sales. Well, where the hell is our sales training? <laughs> right. Um, so, but I think openness to change, which I think is going to come quite fast and furious. That's great. And if it doesn't, I don't think a business will survive. Hmm. Yeah. There's it's, uh, that realm of possibilities, right? Yeah. What would you like to ask the next guest on the Focus Core podcast? Could he bring me a coffee? Ah, nice. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll ask. You, I'll ask. Uh, I appreciate that. Is there uh, a particular coffee you want? Uh, well, yeah, espresso. So it's not hard. Um, but um, you know, good vegetarian restaurant recommendations. So you and I have struggled in Ginza because our favorite Indian restaurants have all closed down or gone downhill a little bit. Haven't yeah. they? Um, so definitely we need to find a new go-to curry house. That's always quite useful, isn't it, for lunch? Um, those sorts of things, I think. Should, should I be more serious? Is that a more I think serious? I think it's a brilliant uh, – I think we'll see what we get uh, from our next guest, and they'll, we'll pass that along. And uh, what's, uh, what, we got to talk a little bit about running. What's your next race? Uh, OMA 30K, which okay, is what, so we'll, February 18th. We'll, we'll run that together. That's very exciting. We're, we're so, going to skip and hold hands to cross the finish line together. Well, no, you will be at least 10 minutes ahead of me. Um, well, uh, yeah. So I basically set myself a task and my running coach a task to get me to the start line mm, mm. as injury free as possible. 
and then don't worry about the time. I just want to actually turn up at the start line without like, a torn hamstring or something. Have you different. run all maybe before? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I did it in 2019. Um, I was in good shape then, but I had cut my toenails the night before a little bit too aggressively. <laughs> and so I ended up um, from about the 15 kilometre with blood squirting out of my foot. Oh. Uh, so it was a pretty, pretty brutal second half. It was a positive split, not a negative split. Uh, yeah, and then I the so, and then I was there on Sunday having a little look at the course. Not look at the course. It's kind of silly because you just go up a road at 15K, you come back down the road, but trying to remember. Brilliant course. I love it. It's beautiful. I like that it's just a gradual uphill on the way out and then on the way back, it's downhill. So you can, you can pick up off. speed and you finish fast. Yeah, yeah, and the and the run down maybe from about five k is gradually downhill. When you've got five k to go, it's pretty much downhill, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the town, the people are lovely, shouting you on and whatnot. And I, I just was thinking about uh, runners oversharing, and uh, your your visual of spurting blood just uh, made me think about that. Actually, not my next race. My next race is Sunday. Uh, the Shabir Ekidem, but that's seven okay. k. So yeah, that take. 11 minutes, 12 minutes, maybe. Nice. Um, oh, maybe a bit more of a commitment. That's at least two hours, 35 minutes, I reckon, for me. And then the Ekiden, is that uh, with the Nambon team? Yes, indeed. Cool. Good luck on that. Run swift, run strong. Is there anything that uh, I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? I don't think so. Good. I don't think well, thank you, Ashley. It's always a joy and uh, a wonder to speak with you. Always insightful as well. So thank you so much for sharing your time today. Yep. Thank you for booking me in. Great fun. Um, and have a super week. I'm doing the uptown down here.